Welcome to Conversations with Friends About Church History. I'm Steve Weaver, a Baptist pastor with a Ph.D. in church history. On this podcast, I want to have conversations with some of my friends who happen to be church historians. We'll talk about how we met, how our lives and academic careers have intersected, and discuss church history. I hope you enjoy these conversations. I certainly will. Well, hello, and uh, welcome back to this Conversations with Friends about Church History. And uh, this is uh, this has been fun. Uh, already going to talk to some of my heroes and some of my friends, and uh, really a blessing in this episode to talk to my friend Jeff Robinson. And uh, you'll notice we're sporting our favorite baseball teams uh, jerseys uh, on this uh, recording. And uh, for those of you who are watching, if you're listening, of course, you can't tell that. You'll just have to take my word for it. But I'm wearing uh, Atlanta Braves. And Jeff, what do you have on there? I have, I have the Cincinnati Reds, the, the big red machine. The big red machine. So Jeff is a Reds fan, and uh, I'm a Braves fan. We're both also wearing uh, sackcloth and ashes because we're in mourning that baseball season hasn't happened. And I've uh, been very discouraged by the conversations even that uh, they're having, but uh, I think maybe there's some movement toward getting some kind of a season, but both of us would not be happy with the fact that uh, it looks like a DH is going to be a part of that. Mm. Yeah, being a, being a baseball purist, being a National League guy all my life, uh, you know, the DH uh, is, is uh, like Antichrist or something. You know, that's heresy to not let the pitcher bat. So, yeah, I don't like that. But at this point, uh, I, I was turning around, flipping the channels a couple of nights ago, and I, I, I noticed on ESPN, and I mean ESPN 1, uh, was foosball, uh, two men playing foosball. And I thought, you know, we have reached an all-time low. How we have fallen. How the money has fallen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And what, and what was funny is they, they would but score. Still, but still we've not got desperate enough to watch soccer, right? No, I have not. No, and apologies to one of my elders who – Love soccer just like we love in the same way we love baseball. But yeah, I, uh, I it will be a, it'll be a, an interesting day when I uh, start doing that. Uh, so sorry, soccer fans. Uh, that's just you probably think that about baseball uh, too. It's like watching yeah. grass grow. But uh, well, but they're wrong and we're right. right. Absolutely. Jeff is a native of Blairsville, Georgia, uh, pastor at Christ Fellowship Church in Louisville and serves as a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition. Jeff and I have a number of things in common. We both uh, did our PhDs in church history, historical theology, under Dr. Tom Nettles, who we count as a dear friend. Uh, Both of us do. And uh, we both are in pastoral ministry. Uh, We both love baseball. We've already talked about that. And uh, so we've got a lot in common. When we get together, we we normally talk about baseball and theology and, you know, we don't know where one ends and the other starts and we have a great time going to baseball games. I first uh, saw you, I think you were working for Southern when I was doing some studies at Southern uh, early on. I did not yet know you, but I saw you, you're always on the move, moving fast. And I think you're working in communications maybe in uh, uh, for the, the uh, communication department at Southern seminary. And uh, you've got a background for how long? Two or three decades in uh, newspaper work as a sports reporter 
tell me about that just a little bit. Tell us about the, your background in uh, communications that uh, obviously then you were able, while you were in seminary, you were able to use that uh, working for the communications department at Southern. But your background was in sports reporting. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I worked in newspapers for 23 years, uh, 13 years before uh, moving to Louisville in, the, in 2000, and, uh, and, and, and 10 of those years overlapped with ministry, so I'm not old enough to have had to, you know, ministry 23 years in sports. I mean, I've actually been in journalism, some form of journalism, for 34 years, so I'm betraying my age there. But yeah, I started, uh, I went to work at a daily newspaper. I actually worked in my hometown newspaper uh, when I was a teenager. I played mm -hmm. baseball in high school, but then I would write about the other games, uh, I knew early on uh, I wasn't going to be a big leaguer. I wasn't going to be uh, the next Joe Morgan with a big red machine or the next uh, uh, Glenn Hubbard of the Atlanta Braves, sadly. Uh, God just didn't give me that kind of talent. But, uh, but I wanted to be in journalism. I loved sports growing up, especially baseball and, and college football, and, and, uh, but especially baseball. And um, so I, I thought, well, if I can't, can't play it, I'll write about it. I've always been a voracious reader. I uh, used to take the old sporting news when it was the, they called it the Bible of baseball back in the day. And I would get that out of the mailbox on Thursday. I lived out in the country, didn't have anything to do. I, you know, Blair, Blairsville, Georgia, uh, I'll, a prize to anyone who's heard of that who doesn't know me. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I just love to, to read the columns and the baseball news in there. We didn't have the internet back then, anything like that, of course. And so, you know, the news we would get was new news to me and uh, just inhaled, read people like Peter Gammons and Furman Bisher and lots of others. And so really just started to dream about what would it be like to write about baseball? And so yeah. I was privileged to get to do that for a few years and uh, I covered college football, lots of high school stuff. Uh, covered car racing. We used to, uh, at the Daily Paper in Gainesville, Georgia, we would draw straws as to which one of us had to cover that. And uh, I always seemed to get the shortest straw. I was the youngest guy on the staff and I, and I realized now it was always rigged. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that Robinson got the... The, uh, the shortest straw. I remember covering the Falcons, Atlanta Falcons and Detroit Lions once on Christmas Eve, and I drew the shortest straw, and the Falcons were like, you know, 4 and 11, and the, the Lions were what they usually are, and so, but it was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I did that for a lot of years uh, for Gannett News Service. Uh, when we came here to Louisville, I worked at the Career Journal while I got my education, while I worked at the seminary, you know, a bunch of kids, so a lot of mouths to feed, but loved doing that. I got to cover the, the Louisville Bats a lot since my background was in baseball, and uh, just had a lot of fun. Got to cover the World Series a couple of times, uh, uh, Super Bowl uh, one year. Just, just uh, the Lord's given me a lot of opportunities, especially in sports, but also I've worked, worked in news for a long time. But uh, yeah, I always tell my wife, if I couldn't write a, a little, I would be altogether worthless. So, <laughs> so I, I, do, I do love to write and love sports and still do, you know, I, I write for a couple of historical uh, societies, uh, baseball historical societies, and things like that, just to kind of scratch that itch. And I'm like you, I read a lot of baseball books and uh, yeah. biographies and things like that. I'm reading the biography of Branch Rickey right now, as a matter of fact. You know, I, uh, I think my first love for history was reading baseball history and reading biographies of Stan Musial and Yogi Berra, uh, Ted Williams when I was a kid. And uh, I really got a, a hunger for history out of that. I had a book of uh, great moments in baseball history and read all those and uh, can tell you more about things that happened in the sixties and seventies and eighties. than I can about what happened last year. I, I uh, just uh, enjoyed that background. You had a, not only that interest in baseball and sports and your work as a, uh, in the, in the newspaper business uh, as a reporter, but also now you come, comes to Southern seminary 
uh, you're called to ministry, obviously. Uh, you're eventually doing a PhD, and you choose as your topic uh, a man by a, by the name of H. H. Tucker. And I'm guessing uh, less people who've heard of Blairsville uh, have heard of H. H. Tucker, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, tell us about how you chose him. And uh, I think there's some similarities uh, that uh, I, I see. And I was thinking about today, and I was looking at your dissertation. Uh, I was thinking about the similarities in terms of uh, he, he ends up being, as you know, <laughs> I'm not telling you anything, editor of a newspaper, a, a state Baptist paper, uh, but has a heart for uh, for discipling and pastoring, uh, mentoring people through his publications. And you've done much of the same. Uh, you're mentoring people through the writings that you're doing through the Gospel Coalition books that you've edited and written. Uh, they're serving the past uh, with a pastoral intent, you know, to use the term you use for your dissertation. How did you come to choose H. H. Tucker? And tell us a little bit about his background. I shared a couple of things, but a lot more. Well, if you if you've heard of if you're from Georgia or maybe in a surrounding state, you've probably heard of Tucker, Georgia, uh, which is a suburb of Atlanta. It's a north, probably about, I'm guessing, 30 miles northeast of toward Athens, which is the Holy Land for me, uh, being a University of Georgia graduate. Um, uh, but it's a suburb of Atlanta. It is actually named after H.H. or Henry Holcomb Tucker, who <clears throat> was in his day a famous Southern Baptist theologian. He lived during the, the uh, antebellum, uh, antebellum and, and postbellum period, uh, died in, in 1886. Uh, but uh, yeah, he owned the Christian Index of Georgia. He pastored for a short time, but he preached all up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, he was almost, I, I laugh and say he was almost an Al Mohler before Al Mohler. He was a culture warrior, wrote about all the issues of the day in the paper and brought theology to bear on that. He was a great theologian. He studied under John Ledley Dagg at, uh, at Mercer University. Uh, he was uh, president of the University of Georgia, my blessed alma mater, uh, at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, or I'm sorry, about 30 years before that. Um, um, the man who was the, the president at the turn of the century, Patrick Hughes Mell, was who I originally set out to do my, write my dissertation on, but after working, uh, uh, after talking to Greg Wills, who previously appeared on one of your, uh, one of your, your, uh, broad podcast here and, and Tom Nettles. We just couldn't find a lot. His memoirs are lost. I mean, I talked to family members, went to the University of Georgia, researched, went to Mercer, but there just wasn't enough. I mean, that's why a biography hasn't been written on him. I was young and cocky and thought, well, I'll be the one who finds the, the Holy Grail of P.H. Mel, who was, a, of course, a Georgia pastor and what's known as Mel's Kingdom for three churches there outside Atlanta, Green, Tolliver County. And again, if you're familiar with Georgia and Athens area, you know that probably. But uh, when that when that uh, turned out to be a, out to be a dry well, Tom Nettles. Uh, I remember sitting in his office one day. I, I made a, a suggestion of some topic he hated. Um, he just did not like it at all. And he said, "You know, I don't like that. Why don't you do H. H. Tucker?" And then he knows I and, and you and I. Another thing you know I have in common, Steve, is we love biography. I love reading about people. That's why I went into journalism. I love people's stories. We all have a story, and I, I'll read just about anybody's story. Uh, I mean, I've read biography, I read, you know, like you, presidential biographies all the time. I want to read one of, uh, one of every president uh, before I died. I've read Keith Richards' biography. I mean, you name it, I'll, I'll read it. So <laughs> writing a biography of a man, no one ever had been kind of lost uh, to history, 
was very attractive to me and making it kind of what my friend Peter Beck called a theography, a theological biography, because we, you know, we do historical theology uh, right. more than just church history. That's my main interest. So that really appealed to me. And as I began to research him um, in the library at Southern and at Mercer and back to back in, in uh, my, my other hometown in Athens, um, I, there was a, there, it was a rich vein of just pure gold. I mean, he wrote about theology and, and mm-hmm. ethics and all these things. I and mean, he wrote about Mormonism as it's making inroads into the South and the JEDP. I remember writing articles about that and warning Southern colleges and uh, to stay away from that. I mean, even UGA was still considered a Christian college back then, no longer, sadly, as I can attest. Um, but, but so it, it, I was intrigued by that. And, and Tom, I remember him saying, and he was a newspaper editor. Yeah. And, and as we learned, as I, I began to dig, I realized he had actually owned the Christian index. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he served people by writing. And that really gave me, I mean, I always want to be a pastor. I want to be, you know, I've never known what I want to be when I grew up, sort of pastor, theologian, journalist, historian, all those things. It was all kind of wrapped up into him. Again, yeah. he studied personally under, under John Ledley Dagg. And uh, I felt like he's a, that's a good parallel with Tom Nettles. I mean, a, a legendary theologian, first writing theologian among Southern Baptists. And of course, Tom yeah. is the preeminent Baptist historian, I think, of our time. And, and uh, I'm prejudiced, obviously, but and, uh, I do believe that. So, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of commonality. And uh, yeah. Turns out he spent time in Blairsville. He'd write about that. That just, I thought, this is really interesting how he would come up there and preach revivals. I mean, you know, of course, revival meetings or protracted meetings were big among Southern Baptists. And he'd write about revivalism and, and just uh, he would critique it. And, of course, he was reformed in his theology, rock solid, second London confession man. Uh, right. Just a lot to love about him. I mean, there's some definitely, he was a man of his time. So there were things about him that, that right. we would find off-putting as many of the men of that time uh, he, he, he didn't transcend his uh, times, uh, unfortunately, in some areas, but there's just a rich vein of, of theology. So I wrote my, my dissertation about how he used the newspapers basically to preach and to yeah. teach. And uh, He's a I, pastor I, to pastors and also right. lay people who are reading that. I mean, um, it's hard for us to recognize from our perspective how a dominant uh, Baptist papers were in the life of people ordinary people and certainly pastors. And so he had tremendous impact uh, in his, like you said, theological views, as well as addressing issues in the culture. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who was uh, served as a brief stint as president of Mercer, chancellor of the University of Georgia, but really his life work was with the Christian Index. And for those of you who don't know that, you've kind of picked up probably this a state paper uh, the Christian Index, the oldest, I think probably still the continuous, oldest continuous running uh, Baptist state paper. And it has, before him, you had someone like uh, Jesse Mercer, I believe, was a editor of that paper. And after him, uh, more recent days, uh, maybe in the last 30 years, uh, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr. was the editor of that paper just before he came as the ninth president of Southern Seminary. And so, uh, just that, just his role as an editor of that paper makes him attractive as a as a figure to study. And uh, you did a great job of showing how he emphasized theology, uh, ecclesiology. Uh, all of those things are important to us. When I talked to Dr. Nettles, I talked about the Nettlesian quadrilateral of Baptist identity as he kind of lays out that uh, orthodoxy and uh, evangelical emphasis and uh, um, 
those and then the distinctives flowing out of that and you you kind of follow that pattern with uh tucker and showing how he does that so i appreciate your work on that uh what struck me as i was, I was uh, looking at that work again was how um how many, I already mentioned this, how many parallels there are with what you ended up doing. Uh, you coming out of an editor, not of a state paper, but working in a newspaper. But you continue, you really, I mean, your title, as I shared just a moment ago, you're a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, which has probably the equivalent of what a Baptist newspaper would have been back in the day in terms of impact, reach, Pastors are reading it, lay people's reading it. And so you are pastoring pastors through those articles uh, that you've written. So it's interesting, God's providence, that you kind of, you're mirroring a 21st century version of what uh, Tucker did in the 19th century. So I'm thankful for that, thankful for God's providence and how he's using you. And you're doing that through your writings as well, a number of things. One of the things I appreciate too, uh, and you mentioned some of the ways in which Tucker was a, a part, a, a man of his times, uh, I was blessed, uh, encouraged, and a little bit surprised to see how honestly and forthrightly you dealt with the slavery issue, and uh, you addressed that topic in your uh, in your dissertation, uh, and you uh, and you condemned, you know, you flat out said he was, you know, he got he was wrong on these issues. Um, he did not transcend his culture on these issues. And uh, uh, even though in other areas he, would, he seemed to be able to speak in a way that uh, reflected biblical authority, in a way that uh, confronted even his contemporaries when necessary, on this issue, uh, like so many others, uh, he demonstrated his fallenness and his sinfulness. And, you know, this was something you wrote. I think, did you, was that published or? written in 2008 or 2006 2008 that's right yeah. and uh, you know it's long before the conversations we're having today but i appreciate the fact that you did not do a hagiography right. uh, you actually dealt with this person seriously and you took uh, him works and all so to speak and you did good historical work i appreciate that and it stands the test of time when you do that so thank you well, yeah, I mean, we, you know, true history is not hagiography. I mean, I was a fan, just like I'm a fan of Spurgeon and Bunyan and J.C. Ryle and all these men, but they're men. I mean, they're, they're sinners, and they have blind spots, just like, you know, I know someday you and I are, uh, are going to have our blind spots pointed out by somebody else. Somebody will be, you know, our, our generation, they'll be writing about the, the, the theologians and pastors in our generation, and we yeah. have those. We have to be honest about those. I think that's it's sub-Christian to be less than honest about that. And, you know, and sadly, uh, he didn't live up to it. He had great theology, but he didn't live up to it in every area. Uh, just like we, I think we have great theology. It's the same theology, but we don't always live up to that because we're, we're sinners. And so I did try to put that rather early in the dissertation because, uh, you know, I did, I did not want this to appear as just a, uh, a work of hagiography because it wouldn't have passed, first of all. I mean, it wouldn't have passed. The, it, it, that's an authentic history. Uh, but but at the same time, I, I, I mean, nowadays, I do want to write church history for the church. Uh, I love someone like Ian Murray. In fact, probably my, my, uh, my historian hero, besides, of course, Tom and, and others around Southern that I've been blessed to study under, you have been blessed to study under, is Ian Murray, who's written uh, the finest, one of the finest biographies I've ever read, the two volumes on, on Lloyd-Jones. It's one of my preaching heroes, one of your preaching heroes. 
and uh, wrote, wrote a fine biography on Edwards and others. But it is more, it, what I love about that is it's history for the church. I yeah. mean, it's not hagiography, but it's history for the church. And so yeah. I remember saying that in my defense and not knowing, thinking I may get killed here. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm writing for the church. I'm writing this for you, my committee. <laughs> but if this gets published, I want it to be aimed more at the church. And, and But part of that is being honest about uh, these blind spots and these sinful uh, the, the, the sinful rationalizations they made about these things. Again, I have them too, and I don't see them. That's why they're blind spots. So, but Tucker, I mean, he... He was uh, commendable in so many ways, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun to kind of build him from the ground up because I didn't I know where Tuck, I played high school baseball uh, in Tucker, Georgia, against uh, their high school, and had been through there many times, but I did not know. In fact, I sent them a copy of my dissertation in the Chamber of Commerce. They had no idea <laughs> who this man was, and so you know they were they were grateful uh, for that, yeah. uh, and uh, they didn't know a lot about it. So yeah. I guess I'm the leading expert on their. Uh, the father of their fair city. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the great thing about doing a doctoral dissertation. You become a expert on that small slice of history, whatever it is. And uh, so you're the leading guy on H.H. Tucker. So thank you for your work. But I'm really thankful for how that's uh, set you up. I mean, you've served in pastoral ministry, but, uh, but through your writings, like through the Gospel Coalition and other things you've published, you're continuing to mentor. I mean, you're not really, although you still do, like me, I'm a pastor, do adjunct teaching, do some writing. Um, more, I focus more on church history. You focus more on, on doing things that will be helpful to pastors. Um, part of that's your role with the Gospel Coalition, I'm sure, but it's also your heart kind of, you know, maybe there's going to be a dissertation one day on the, uh, the pastoral intent of the writings of, Jeffrey Robinson Sr. Uh, so uh, but we won't live long enough to see that, but well, maybe that will maybe that will happen one of these days. You published, uh, uh, you've co-edited some things with uh, Dr. Carson, uh, a couple of works. You've co-edited some things with Colin Hansen. Uh, you've uh, also co-authored a book with Michael Haken on uh, To the Ends of the Earth. Uh, of course, we, I've talked to Dr. Haken on this Theories uh, that we're doing, and uh, that was a that was a very important work because it shows how coming out of the Reformation, Calvin and uh, his heirs, so to speak, actually had a missionary impulse, which is something that's often uh, denied uh, or the kind of caricature that those who are like Calvin and his followers would not be interested in evangelism missions. And that work kind of just traces that through from Calvin onward and, and shows uh, that's not the case. What, what's your reflections on that as you work with that on Dr. Haken, with Dr. Haken? Yeah, I mean, we, we had the idea, I think it was in 2010 during the Andrew Fuller conference uh, uh, that you were, you were at and probably gave a paper in. I think I did too. And just, just, I, I remember sitting, listening to one of the presentations and I remember, I don't remember who was giving the presentation, but the idea kind of popped into my head and, you know, I, I, uh, I resisted looking at my phone to see if anything had been written on this, but I started talking to, to Dr. Haken about it. Like, has there been a, a, a book? I know there's been articles written on yeah. uh, the reformers and missions and evangelism, but there hasn't been a full-length book. And so I began to search and realize there was nothing like that at all. And I was, I was surprised. Uh, and, and as I began to research it, we, we uh, queried with Crossway. They loved the idea and, and bought the book. And so as I began to research, I had a lot of Calvin's exegesis. And, um, it, it wasn't hard to find. I mean, it, you could, 
you know, I think a good, uh, certainly an undergrad or maybe a, a bright high school kid could have done, I mean, look at there and, and read his commentaries in English and found out, wow, this is, this is easy to prove when he talks about John 3.16, the Great Commission, the passage in Ezekiel about God not having the pleasure and the, de- and the, the death, you know, the, the destruction of men. I mean, those kinds of things, the death of the wicked. Um, it was just easy to prove. I mean, it was clear that they had a heart for the lost that in many ways, the Reformation was uh, a revival. And it was aimed at the salvation of souls. I mean, the recovery of the gospel, the five solos, I mean, they're all aimed at one, really one chief end, and that is the salvation of souls. I mean, that's why you and I got in ministry, right? That's why we all get in ministry, I hope. But, but Calvin and, and, and also, I mean, Luther and others, but we focused on Calvin because he's the one who's always kind of accused of having nothing to say to the, to the lost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and we try to point out in the book that he was a man of his times. I mean, he was, he was recovering the gospel. He was running for his life. Uh, so he didn't send Carrie to Bengal or anything like that. He couldn't have, but he mm-hmm. laid the foundation for it. And certainly uh, men like Andrew Fuller and William Carey and Adoniram Judson, they came in his wake and uh, drawing on his writings, on his theology, they went, took the gospel to the nations. And so, you know, that's what we try to show. And I think it's, it was easy to show. I mean, it's not been answered, you know, right. kind of like it's the death of death and the death of Christ. No one's answered that, you know? So, but um, yeah. I, I just think, yeah, that's just a uh, an old case. yeah. And there's a there's an unknown uh, account there as well included of the of a mission effort that that Calvin uh, sent out some people for came out of Calvin's Geneva at least to go to right. Brazil, I believe, wasn't it? And uh, of course, it's 1500s, and uh, uh, there was a missionary impulse. Another area you see that's I think in some of the prayers that Calvin prayed, where he prayed uh, for the conversion of the of the nations. And uh, so there was a passion for that in his, in his heart and life. And it's, it's compelled and impelled uh, missionaries to go to the ends of the earth, you know, ever since that theology, a big God theology uh, that Christ has a people and that he will save them. And uh, we can go to them and proclaim the gospel, knowing that God will use that to call people to himself. And uh, that's a, that's a powerful motivation. If I, in fact, that's what motivates me as a preacher. If I thought it depended ultimately on my skill as a wordsmith or as a persuasive speaker or as a manipulator of emotions, then I would be pretty discouraged in evangelistic preaching. But instead, uh, my confidence is that God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe, and he uses that in conjunction with his Holy Spirit to draw people to himself. So. Uh, that's the confidence that we have as uh, proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are yeah. some things you're working on now that you're excited about? Well, I uh, I just I just finished a book, uh, my first my first solo uh, first full length book um, for the Gospel Coalition is coming out uh, later this summer uh, or maybe early fall. We're still COVID nineteen's kind of. Uh, thrown some of our publishing uh, dates into into chaos, but uh, I finished it last fall. Uh, it's called uh, "Taming the Tongue: How the Gospel Transforms Our Talk." It's very practical. It's kind of a practical theology of talk, and uh, you know, it's born out of some experience I had early in the ministry, uh, where an elder confronted me and told me I talked too much, and uh, you know, and I began to explore the implications of that sinful behavior in my own life, and realized the Bible has a lot to say about that. So I. I, uh, I've, I've been, uh, I did a class in my church in Birmingham, Alabama, 2012 on that in the summer. It was very popular. And so I've kind of kept that outline and the intent of writing a book about it someday. And now I've done that. So that will be out 
uh, Lord willing, again uh, in the next few weeks. Um, I just Nathan Finn, Nathan Finn and I have edited uh, a two-volume uh, work on uh, Andrew the life and theology of Andrew Fuller, which you have a chapter in. Uh, oh yeah, you know that's coming out. Uh, I think in the fall, maybe we've. I finished my editing work on that here just a little while back. Um, uh, and, and so that, that, uh, those things are in the hopper. And, yeah, I'm glad uh, to hear that's coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Been you, you're probably surprised, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Good, good news. So uh, always I good to find out here. these things. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there's that. And then I've been working on, uh, and this one's going to be, uh, this is, uh, this will get people's attention. Uh, and you, you know about this, uh, Charles Spurgeon. I've been uh, long been an admirer, like so many of us, of Spurgeon. I mean, we quote Spurgeon in our sermons all the time because we can't say it the way he did, right? I mean, and so, um, but uh, I'm working on uh, Spurgeon, uh, a, a book project on Spurgeon and social ministry. Hmm. Uh, you know, I've jokingly told people it's the woke Spurgeon, and that's not the title, but uh, just <laughs> it definitely would get some attention. But but Spurgeon yeah. had a very robust uh, ministry to the poor. Uh, he uh, yeah. Uh, had many uh, 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 opened a, a, an orphanage, uh, cared about drunkenness and dissipation, all the all the social sins in uh, in England. He was politically astute, very astute. Had some definitely some very clear political opinions. But what drove him was the Bible and evangelism. It wasn't it wasn't political identity, anything like that. And it and so the you know the uh, uh, the discussion with Spurgeon is quite different than our debates today. But I think they can inform them. I mean, Spurgeon was, had some very pointed words for the South, uh, for my, you and I are both deep South people, uh, during, uh, the, during the, the Civil War uh, over yeah. slavery, strongly opposed slavery. And he saw what our uh, men and some of our heroes here didn't see and, uh, and strongly opposed that. So uh, that's something that we'll, you know, I'm researching as well. So very compelling. I'm not, not exactly sure Crossway, uh, we, I've been talking to them about, we're hoping they'll publish it. But it's still kind of a, that's a bit of a work in progress. I'm even considering a, a co-author, a young a man uh, who's done his research in that area. So uh, yeah. that, that's kind of what's, uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'd love to see that work. And I think that'd be a great, valuable contribution. And Spurgeon is uh, someone who speaks so many issues. And as you said, speaks very eloquently to them. And uh, that's, you know, he's, he's in that mod. I was thinking as you were saying that, he's in that classic framework of what an evangelical is in terms of, you know, Bebbington defined uh, the quadrilateral on evangelical identity of being a biblicist, crucicentrism with an emphasis on the cross, conversionism, emphasis on conversion, but then also activism. And yeah. so he, he was compelled by his biblicism and his uh, view of the cross and conversion also be involved in uh, social activity and uh, that's a that's a hallmark really of evangelicalism and uh, he's a tremendous example of that uh, how the slave trade ended in in uh, England is through the impact of people like William Wilberforce yeah. who's living those principles out and uh, Mueller and so many others we can think about who had uh, who cared for those who are who are in uh, uh, in uh, impoverished or uh, in need of in various ways. So thanks for your work on that. Uh, you, we, I can't remember. We probably published things together with. We probably done things like in particular Baptist Press, some of those series, like a Noble Company and uh, British 
Fuller Baptist, and uh, you asked me to have a chapter in a thing you published uh, a few years ago, 12 Faithful Men, and that's something I really, hey, there it is, yep. uh, 12 Faithful Men. And you were just telling me before we started recording that uh, there's a 12 Faithful Women uh, book that's coming out, and I guess that's going to be companion and packaged together with 12 Faithful Men in at least marketing. And uh, so thank you for letting me do that. I've got to write about Andrew Fuller and uh, that was a work that uh, you had a desire to see that uh, uh, minister to pastors as uh, how different pastors in history have endured various trials and crises and remained faithful. And those examples, obviously 12 of them in that book. So thanks for allowing me that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was proud of the way the volume turned out, and I know uh, Melissa Kruger and Kristen Weatherall have done an excellent job. I'm just now getting my first look at the Twelve Faithful Women, which is a kind of a companion of all. They've done a wonderful job. I tell you, our ladies' ministry at uh, at the Gospel Coalition. I mean, to me, that it's it's the shining star of our ministry there uh, with Melissa and and uh, so many others. But uh, this has been uh, th- it was a labor of love. I mean, I wrote a chapter in there on the Apostle Paul, and we had you know chapters on Calvin and John Newton and some names you heard of, of course, Edwards and his, his firing. Peter Beck did an excellent job with that. But also some names you've probably not heard of. I mean, John Chavis, yeah. uh, my friend Daryl Williamson, who's uh, one of our council members uh, at uh, the pastor in Florida, one of our council members at TGC, wrote a very fine chapter introducing us to John Chavis, who I'd met in a, I, I, had, I had encountered him in a, I think a book written by Ligon Duncan, or a chapter somewhere written by Ligon in one of their works on confessionalism, and and mm-hmm. became intrigued. And and Daryl knew a little about him and assigned it to him. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, Zach Eswine, who wrote a an excellent book on called Spurgeon's Sorrows that ministered to me, my heart, in a particularly difficult yeah. time in ministry. We had him write uh, kind of that book in in uh, miniature in a chapter in uh, Twelve Faithful Men was very very good. Uh, J. C. Ryle, one of my heroes, and then Janani Lewin. Not a lot of people have heard of uh, Janani Lewin, uh, who uh, is, is uh, ministered, uh, died in 1977, uh, was a later 20th century figure, uh, in, uh, and, and, and who really uh, endured a lot of things, uh, a lot of political, uh, it was uh, um, really went through a lot of suffering over his political viewpoints as they related to the church. And so uh, it's just, it's a unique book. And I, uh, I would commend it to, you know, every pastor out there because we all know, and the, the, the point of the book is uh, that pastoral ministry is not for the faint of heart. Uh, as Paul Tripp, one of my favorite books on pastoral ministry is Dangerous Calling. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, in fact, Paul Tripp wrote a, wrote a foreword uh, to my new book on words, which I'm, I was thrilled to have him do that. He's a, a longtime friend of mine as well. And it has been a, a hero of mine for a long, long time. But uh, uh, it is a dangerous calling. It's not for the faint of heart. I mean, sometimes I think we get the idea. We see our heroes, you know, John Piper and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and, and uh, Tim Keller and whoever your heroes are. And you think my ministry is going to be like that. You know, I'll go to seminary and I'll go preach and it'll, it'll throw and I'll, I'll have a, an international ministry. And, you know, those guys went through a lot, a lot of them before they ever became who they were. And that's really not ministry, as you well know. I mean, you and I both pastor small churches, and our churches are more like the way it really is. And so, yep. you know, I wanted to show that pastoral ministry, these men suffered greatly. John Calvin, I mean, he spent a lot of his life uh, t- running for his life mm-hmm. and uh, under the threat of persecution during the Reformation as he recovered the gospel. He and Luther 
obviously that was deeply offensive to the, uh, the established church uh, in, in, in Geneva and, and parts beyond. And, and I was going to say a minute ago, Geneva was a church planting center. We, you know, church planting yep, today is very right. vibrant, yep. but that's nothing new. Sometimes we think, well, all the manuals, we just invented that, you know, but not, not, uh, not really. Yeah. John Calvin, uh, uh, Geneva is a church planting center there. You read his letters and there's churches planted all over France and others. And he writes these wonderful letters to these young men who he'd sent out, he mentored and sent out. And, uh, and so, um, but, but anyway, we uh, really tried to show that your chapter is, is excellent on, on Andrew Fuller. Uh, I want to show, uh, he suffered. And I'll talk about this for a minute. Talk about your chapter. Tell, tell our listeners and viewers how he suffered in a way that I think is unique in terms of losing his children. I mean, mm-hmm. we think of losing one child. I mean, my greatest nightmare uh, as, a, as a parent would be outliving any of my children, one. But tell, tell, talk about just for a second, Andrew Fuller, and what that chapter, how you, you do a great job of sort of encapsulating that in, in the chapter, which is what I wanted. You gave me exactly what I wanted. Well, that chapter uh, ministered to me as I was writing it, and uh, one of the most uh, spiritually beneficial things probably – I've written for myself and uh, the, the combination of things that he went through um, each of the one, one thing that stood out to me about it is each of those things were things that I encounter commonly in pastoral ministry as you know, his wife suffers from dementia. Uh, I've had to minister to uh, members whose spouses would forget who they are and think that they're, uh, being kept captive by their own uh, spouse and all the pain that that causes. Um, I know you've had to experience that in your family as well. Uh, I believe your mother experienced that. And uh, it's just a difficult thing uh, to go through. But then to see this man 200 years ago going through that and how he cared for his wife and then eventually he loses his wife uh, in that process. And so just a tremendous time of grief all the way through that. Uh, but also the loss, as you mentioned, the loss of a young child, a young daughter and, uh, and how he wrestles with the Lord and praying for her and just grieves. And then his, and then, and then she, and then he loses her. And, uh, it's just a, a very, uh, difficult time, but the hope that he finds the same hope that we have to find in all these trials is hope in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the uh, perhaps uh, saddest chapters in uh, Fuller's life is uh, with one of his sons who he believes dies unconverted as far as he knows. It turns out that later uh, there's information that comes about that says that someone who was there with him at the end knew that he had turned to Christ in his final days and had a good testimony in his last days. But uh, Andrew Fuller never knew that about his son. And uh, so just the, that, that pain of a, a wayward son. And as far as he knew had gone to hell, uh, you know, tragic uh, uh, thing. And then Fuller had physical issues, his whole life struggles as well. But uh, again, his hope in all of these was the same gospel and hope we have to lean on. And so that's why it was so edifying to me. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's pastoral ministry. I mean, pastoral ministry, pastoral ministry is, is, is both, as I've said, it's glorious. I can't imagine doing anything else. I'm, I'm first and foremost a pastor, but it's also gut wrenching. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, you never know what a day is going to bring, whether it's in your own family, your own life, or in, within your church. And, you know, you develop, as these men did, a great love for your people, great affections for your people, and uh, you're, you're the under-shepherd. And uh, they, when they suffer, you suffer. The entire body suffers. But you've got to be there to minister to them. And so, you know, uh, it, it's, it's uh, I wrote an article a few years ago uh, called Beware of Your Fictional Church. <laughs> How your fictional church can undermine your ministry because – you know, in seminary, church discipline is easy, right? It's easy. You would discipline your mother in, in you know, in in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in seminary. You know, you'd say, well, if she gets out of line, well, we'll just kick her out of the church. You know, sorry, mom. But, uh, you know, if you're sitting across the table from mom and she's really sinned and it's a, she's unrepentant, that's that's hard. That's different. I mean, or or we're a church member. I mean, we've both, you and I have both been involved in things like that. And and um, it's easy. You can you can approach that with a certain amount of bravado, uh, when you're not doing it, but when you're doing it, it's something completely different. I mean, uh, yep. talking to my own elders, we're in a situation arose in our church a few weeks back, and and I said it's amazing how before we arrived here tonight, and I, uh, I, I, before I sat, had to sit across the table from you all and, and these individuals, how easy this was going to be to me. <laughs> but these are people, and you know, we go hard on issues and, and easy on people. As my one of my old pastors told me long, long time ago. Yep, it's. Uh... You're exactly right, and uh, I, I, one of the struggles I think I had early on in pastoral ministry, I'm not sure you struggled with this, trying to make a church that someone else would be pleased with more than caring about shepherding and pastoring the people who are there. And As I've uh, matured and grown in ministry, I'm, I'm more interested in shepherding the people that God's given me, uh, regardless of what any who may be watching from the outside think about that. If I'm doing what I know is right before God, uh, then in one sense I can I'm now free not to care what others think what's right for people that God's entrusted to me. And um, at the end of the day, that's what we're gonna give an account for. Uh, thank you for your example of uh, of faithfulness and pastoral ministry and how you're ministering to the body. Thank you for your friendship. And I look forward to us having a conversation at a baseball field as we like to go and watch baseball and talk for three hours straight uh, about various things while we're watching a game. I look forward to doing that again one day in a post-COVID-19 world, maybe. And uh, at least maybe we'll get some baseball on television. And uh, until then, we'll just just keep keep waiting. Well, one thing, one of one of the things, um, our friendship has been built around. Uh, we've done every year uh, that I think is important to note is we, uh, for how many years in a row have we gone to a Reds Braves game together, taking our boys, taking our sons, and sometimes other friends, and going. It's a good yeah. family tradition. When I lived in Birmingham, and I would call you on the day that the Reds and Braves played in Cincinnati, and say. Steve, I'm really missing you, man. <laughs> but for years yeah. we've done that, so we would. I think we thought it was fitting to wear our uh, our jerseys tonight and uh, to, to uh, sort of a, a, a symbol of our friendship because we've we've had a lot of fun. And I don't know. You, I think the Braves have won most of those games in recent years because <laughs> the Reds. You know, few few people believe that uh, the, the Reds I grew up rooting for were the best team in baseball, and now you know not so much. But uh, you have to stand by your team. But I'm I'm with you. I hope we get to do that sooner rather than later. Yeah, go Braves, and uh, thank you, Jeff, for your time. And I'm um, continuing to uh, watch you and thank God for you and pray for you and uh, see how God's using you in your ministry. So stay faithful, keep doing it, 
and God bless you. Lord bless you. You likewise, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Conversations with Friends about Church History. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If so, please share with your friends and keep listening. Thank you.